the Bible. And uh, just as a little bit of an overview, I'm going to pull uh, this slide up from last week, if I can, there we go. Last week we talked about the, or I introduced the four big areas of uh, study for this subject matter. How we have these four categories. The first is inspiration. That's us talking about how God's Word was communicated from Him to us. Then we go into the realm of transmission. That's how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. The third big category of study will be the collection of God's Word. This is how God's Word was canonized into its current form. And then finally, we'll get to the translation category. That's where we examine how God's Word was translated from the original languages into English in particular. So these will be the four, four categories of our study uh, during this quarter. Last week, we dealt primarily in the inspiration category. I did not get to finish that study, though, so we're going to uh, pick up with it for just a little bit. And uh, let me share this, show this to you. Last week, we were looking at evidence of inspiration. How can we know that God's Word is inspired? And as we examined this, we looked at two categories last week. We looked at the unity of the Bible and how the, the Bible presents a consistent message, whether you're looking at the narrative story or the, the, the moral teachings or doctrinal teachings of Scripture. There is a consistent story that is unified all throughout the text of Scripture. And that unity is, is something that men would fail to do if it was all up to themselves. And so the, the unity of the Bible is an indicator of God's involvement in its inspiration. We also looked at the scientific accuracy of the Bible. We looked at several, particularly in the Old Testament, several teachings related to, to bloodletting, related to germs, quarantining, dietary laws, circumcision, and how all of the, the uh, uh, statements in Scripture that have a scientific or medical application to them, how they are consistent with what we know about science and medicine today. The Bible is not a medical textbook by any stretch of the imagination. But the Bible does have statements that can be either proven or disproven by what we know about science and medicine. And, and so the scientific accuracy of the Bible helps us to see that it, it is inspired as well. And that brings us to the third category that we did not get to talk about last week. And that category is the historical accuracy of the Bible. Obviously, there is historical text in Scripture. There are historical accounts both in the Old and in the New Testament. And the, the idea here is, if what is stated in Scripture that has historical application or historical reference, if that is inconsistent with what we discover in secular history or in the, in the, through the, the work of archaeology, if there is a discrepancy there, that would disprove inspiration. But on the other hand, if the historical accounts in Scripture match what we find in secular history, are proven by archaeology, then that just gives credence, credit to the inspiration of Scripture. So I want to share a few examples of historical accuracy that we can find in the Bible. And uh, though the Bible itself doesn't claim to be a, a, a historical textbook by any stretch of the imagination, it does deal with historical facts. And their accuracy helps us understand the inspiration of Scripture. So we'll start with this 
archaeological discovery. This is called the Moabite stone. It's about three and a half feet tall, two feet wide. It contains a Canaanite inscription in the name of King Mesha of Moab, telling how Shamash, the god of Moab, had been angry with his people and allowed them to be subjugated to the nation of Israel. But eventually, Shamash returned and helped King Mesha throw off the yoke of Israel and restore the lands of Moab. That's the story the Moabite stone tells. In the text of the Moabite stone, remember this is not a biblical artifact. This is a Canaanite artifact. In the text of this uh, artifact, there is a reference to Omri as the king of Israel. If you go to 1 Kings chapter 16, you'll read about how Omri, O-M-R-I, was king of the northern kingdom of Israel. It also mentions Omri's son in the Moabite stone. It does not give his name, just references that Omri had a son who was king at one point as well and was closely connected to the Moabites for a time. Does anybody know who Omri's son was? Quite possibly the most infamous king of the northern kingdom, Ahab, who you can read about, 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4 through 6 in particular. So in the text of this secular artifact, we can find reference to Omri as a king of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and he has a son, though unnamed in the text of this artifact, he has a son that's mentioned in it who relates to King Ahab, both of whom are referenced in Scripture. What's also interesting about this stone is that later in its inscription, the name of the Israelite tribe of Gad is referenced, but more importantly, the name of the Israelite God is mentioned. The name Yahweh actually appears on this stone. It is the earliest extra-biblical reference to the Israelite deity that we know of, for sure. Yahweh's name appears on the Moabite stone. And so what this, what this archaeological find has done is it has given credence to the text of Scripture. It has, it has provided evidence that certain things mentioned in the text of the Bible are historically accurate with a secular, uh, a secular narrative, for that matter. After the Moabite stone, we can talk about this. This is called the Taylor prism. It's a six-sided clay artifact that stands about 15 inches tall. It was found in Nineveh in 1830 and contains six columns that are covered by over 500 lines of writing. Part of the text on the Taylor Prism has King Sennacherib's account of what happened in his military conquest of Judah. Now you can read some about Sennacherib's efforts to conquer the southern kingdom in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Well, we'll get to 2 Chronicles 32 in a minute, but in the text of the Taylor prism, there are two things that are interesting. I'm going to read to you a portion of this Taylor prism uh, pulled from Kyle Butt's book, Behold the Word of God. 
The Taylor Prism says this, As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. Remember, this is Sennacherib recording the accounts of what happened when he invaded Judah. This is his version of the story. As to Hezekiah the Jew, he did not submit to my yoke. I laid siege to 46 of his strong cities, walled forts into countless small villages in their vicinity, and conquered them by means of well-stamped ramps, that refers to earth ramps, and battering rams, and brought near to the walls the, the attack by foot soldiers. He goes on to describe some of how he uh, uh, utilized his military might. He says, I drove out 200,150 200, people, young and old, male and female, horses, mules, donkeys, camels, big and small cattle beyond counting, and considered them booty. Himself I made a prisoner in Jerusalem, his royal residence like a bird in a cage. I surrounded him with earthwork in order to uh, molest those who were leaving his city's gate. That's Sennacherib's account of his attack on Judah and Jerusalem. If you go over to 2 Chronicles chapter 32, you'll read the Bible's parallel account of what happened. Now here's what's interesting. The Bible identifies the fact that Sennacherib did in fact attack the outlying cities of Judah and conquered some of them. And the Bible does relay the fact that Sennacherib laid siege to Jerusalem and Hezekiah was stuck inside the city and couldn't leave. But you know what never happened? Sennacherib never conquered Jerusalem. And what's interesting is the Bible relays that to us. And nowhere in his little prism here where he recorded his conquest and his victories and told the stories of how great a king and military leader he was, not once does he ever claim to have conquered Jerusalem. So when you look at a little artifact like this, the fact that it is consistent with the, with the Bible's description of King Sennacherib, a secular king, conquering cities in Judah, but not conquering Jerusalem. That consistency between the text of Scripture and this secular artifact is another evidence of the Bible's inspiration. Then there's this one. This one is called the Cyrus Cylinder. Now you may remember the name Cyrus. He is uh, one of the kings of Babylon. Uh, in fact, he is a king um, who allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and so on. This clay cylinder, it measures about nine inches long, it was discovered in 1879 in Babylon. And upon it, King Cyrus had inscribed details of his victory over the city of Babylon. He was a Persian king who conquered the Babylonian Empire, and his it also records his policy toward the nations he captured, specifically his policy toward their deities and their religions. I want to read a section of this uh, cylinder. It says, Cyrus speaking, of course, I returned to these sacred cities, referring to the 
holy cities of other nations. I return to these sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. Furthermore, I resettled upon the command of Marduk, the great lord, all the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom Nabonidus has brought into Babylon to anger to the anger of the Lord of the gods, unharmed in their former chapels the places which made them happy. May all the gods who I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebu for long life for me, and may they recommend me to Marduk, my Lord. May they say thus, Cyrus the king who worships you, and Cambys his son, all of them I settled in a peaceful place. In other words, what that little cylinder on the screen says is that it was Cyrus's policy that when he conquered a nation, he would let the inhabitants return to that nation and worship their deities again, rebuild their temples or their sanctuaries or whatever holy places were associated with their religion. And if you go over to the book of Ezra and you examine the first chapter, you'll find out that that policy that is recorded in this secular artifact was employed by Cyrus, according to the text of the book of Ezra. And he allowed the Jews to return and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem because that was his policy as evidenced by an artifact outside of Scripture. So the Cyrus cylinder also gives us evidence that the Bible is historically accurate. Now let's get out of the New Testament for two more historically significant artifacts. Pictured on the screen is an object called the pilot inscription. When I say pilot, I'm not talking about somebody who flies an airplane. I'm talking about the guy who Jesus had to stand before at his trial. For nearly 2,000 years, the only references to pilot outside of Scripture were found in the writings of some historians like Josephus and Tacitus. But in 1961, researchers found this two-foot by three-foot slab of rock that had been used in the construction of a landing between flights of steps in a tier of seats reserved for the guests of honor at a Roman theater in Caesarea. And on the stone, the researchers found what was left of an inscription that bore the name of Pontius Pilate. This stone slab documents that Pilate was the Roman official governing Judea at the time of Jesus. And this discovery proved that the Bible was correct and identifying him as such in in places like Luke chapter 3 and verse 1. The significance of this stone that you can barely see writing on is that it proved that a significant individual in the story of the Gospels did in fact rule over Judea at the time that Scripture says he did. And up until the discovery of this stone artifact, Little evidence outside of Scripture suggested Pilate to be real. And one last thing I want to show you. You may not be able to tell what that is, but it is evidence of crucifixion. In spite of all the literary documentation concerning crucifixion, little physical evidence has ever been found to prove that it was practiced. 
Now, that's not surprising considering the people that were crucified weren't necessarily favored in the eyes of the Roman Empire, so they didn't really have much of a reason to protect their remains. Not only that, those crosses certainly got used multiple times and in an, in an, in an, excuse me, and in an era when construction materials may not have been that easy to come by at times, you would reuse what you could. But in 1968, someone found this. It is a heel bone with a nail stuck in it. This was found inside of an ossuary box. Now, an ossuary is a, about an 18-inch to 24-inch long uh, box that the bones of a deceased person would be placed in and then buried inside of a tomb. And this heel bone was found in that ossuary box with the nail still attached to the bone. What's important about that spike in the heel is, one, it proved that crucifixion happened. Two, it proved that crucifixion involved nails. Many discredited the gospel accounts because they believed that the Romans only used ropes, only tied people to the crosses. They didn't actually nail them to it. But what happened here is that spike got driven through the heel bone of an individual who's crucified, and it got stuck in the knot of the wood on that cross. So when they went to remove the body, they couldn't remove the nail. It was stuck. You can see how it's bent on the end. And upon closer examination, they could even find wood, wood still attached to the spike. And it proved that, in fact, in the first century, which is, that is what this is dated to, in the first century, nails were indeed used to attach people to wooden crosses. And so this discovery proved that the Bible was not historically incorrect when it claimed that Jesus had the mark of nails from his crucifixion, as John chapter 20 and verse 25 says. Now this isn't a whole lot of, of information, a whole lot of, of artifacts that I've thrown out there. I've given you five things that show historical accuracy. There are many more you can examine and look up, and there are great books written on the archaeological evidence of the Bible. My point was this, to simply show you that archaeology has proven historical facts that are found in Scripture to be true. And when you can consistently find historical accuracy such as this, it supports the inspiration of the Bible. By the way, just on a side note, the interesting thing about this hillbone is it taught us something about the way People were crucified. When you imagine crucifixion, I'm sure you imagine that someone, when their feet are nailed, it's driven through the top of their feet and into the face of the, of the supporting beam, the vertical beam. That's not how this hill bone was attached. Instead, this hill, hill bone, would have, they would have put the feet around the vertical beam so that the beam ran between the feet and they came in through the side which just seems much more gruesome when you think about it. But the evidence of that heel bone tells us that that's how crucifixion would have really been done, at least for this 
individual. With that being said, I want to move now away from the subject of inspiration, and it's time for us to start a multi-week examination of the category that we call transmission. My goal last week and then with the first half of class tonight was to look at the subject of inspiration to, to examine what it means for the Bible to be inspired and then to, ex- to consider what evidence is there that the Bible is indeed inspired. That's been our objective for the last week and the first half of this week. Now tonight, with the last half of the class, we're going to start talking about transmission. Transmission is an examination of how God's Word has been preserved and passed down over the centuries. See, one thing we have to admit right off the bat is that we don't have any original writings of the biblical authors. We don't have what are called autographs. An autograph is the first edition of any biblical text. So when Paul penned the book of Romans, when he, when he wrote that book or, or had uh, somebody re- write for him, that first copy would be the autograph. None of those autographs exist today. It'd be great if they did, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had the original document of every book of the Bible? But it would also cause a problem for us. Do you know why? Because we would worship that object. Just think about all the sacred items that people all over the world attempt to worship or hold up as holy in some fashion. We have the holy lands. We have holy sites. We have these places where many people go thinking they can go and idolize these objects that have a connection to the biblical accounts. We have Indiana Jones searching for the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy Grail. And if we had the original documents that make up our Bibles, those those documents would become a source of worship for us. So it's actually to our advantage, to some degree, that they don't exist so that we don't worship them. But those those original documents are no longer available to us. And so they, the, the original text of Scripture must be reconstructed from the manuscripts that we possess. Now, a manuscript, a manuscript can easily or simply be defined as a handwritten composition of a biblical text. Now, not all manuscripts are, are related to biblical text, but for our purposes, a manuscript is a handwritten copy of the biblical text. You have to remember that from the time of the writing of these, these uh, books of the Bible, you have 1,500 years or, le- or a little less before you have any form of a printed press come into the picture. And so it's going, they're all going to be written by hand. And when you look at the length of your Bible alone, that's a lot of handwriting involved. So I throw this uh, quote from one of the books that I used in preparation for this study that kind of explains our situation. It says, The authentic writings produced under the direction and authorization of a prophet or apostle 
what are called autographs, are no longer in existence. As a result, they must be reconstructed from early manuscripts and versions of the biblical text. The manuscripts provide tangible and important evidence about the transmission of the Bible from God to us. In other words, no original copy exists of either the Old or New Testament books. Therefore, the text of our Bible is contingent on copies of the original documents that have been preserved over the years. And those copies we call manuscripts. Now this evening, we're going to focus our attention on the New Testament and its manuscripts. In fact, we'll probably be doing that for a couple of weeks. I focus on the New Testament first because uh, for our purposes, the New Testament carries a little greater weight. I don't want to dismiss the Old Testament or discredit the Old Testament or do injustice to it. But if we can understand the New Testament, if we can understand the transmission of the New Testament, it will help us in understanding the transmission of the Old Testament. So we start with the New The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature. With over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts that have been cataloged. There's 10,000 Latin manuscripts, 9,300 other manuscripts from various languages. And I want you to notice the citation there. Who I referenced. I intentionally pulled that from Wikipedia. The most trusted resource in research, right? The reason I used Wikipedia for this is because I I knew the numbers. I had the numbers of the the number of manuscripts from other sources, but I came across this on Wikipedia and I thought, that first sentence, the New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature, and that's on Wikipedia. Because it's absolutely correct. Not to say Wikipedia is. I'm just saying that statement is that well received and believed. Let me show you this. This is a chart of 10 different ancient documents. You can see on the bottom of your screen I have the New Testament listed there. The New Testament in its entirety, not single books, but the, the, the collection of the New Testament. And above that are nine other ancient texts. So you can see at the top we have Homer's Iliad, you have uh, history written by Herodotus and then Thucydides, you have the Gaelic Wars by Caesar and so on. You have all of these ancient texts. Now in the second column you can see the date of their composition or the assumed date of their composition. With the New Testament we range it from AD 50 to 100. We can't be precise but within that 50 year gap It is believed roughly that all the New Testament books were written. Maybe a few years earlier than 50 for a book like James. But that is a pretty good range for the books of the New Testament. You can see that Homer's Iliad dates back to 800 B.C. That's really ancient. Now that would coincide with some of the Old Testament texts when they were written. In the third column, the center column, you'll see there's a category called the earliest copy. In other words, what's the, what, when we have, we don't have originals of all these documents. So what's the date of the earliest or oldest copy that we have of those texts? So you can see they couldn't even put a date on the Iliad in the research I did. 
But then you can look at Her- Herodotus's history, which was written in the four, from 480 to 425. The earliest copy we have is around 900 AD. That's a pretty large gap between the writing of that text and the copy we now have. Same thing with Thucydides' history. Same thing with uh, the work of Plato. Very similar thing with Caesar in his Gaelic Wars and so on. And you can even look at it like Tacitus. He wrote in AD 100, which is comparable to at least the book of Revelation. And yet the earliest or oldest copy we have of Tacitus is from 1100 A.D. So you can see all of these earliest copies listed. Then we get to the New Testament. Written between 50 and 100 in A.D. And the earliest fragment, that's a piece of a text that has some verses on it, and we'll talk about it later. The earliest fragment we have dates to possibly as early as 114 A.D. That's less than 100 years from when that text was written. Possibly, possibly even within 30 years of when that text was written. When it comes to a a full, complete book of the New Testament, the earliest copy, copy we have of a complete book of the New Testament dates to around 200 A.D. That's 100 to 150 years later, not 1,100 years later or 1,500 years later or whatever it might be. The earliest um, complete New Testament, all the books of the Bible, we, all the books of the New Testament we currently have, the earliest copy we have of that dates from the early 300s. That's still better than Homer's Iliad. Herodotus' history, Thucydides' history, Plato, all these texts. In other words, when we compare the New Testament to other ancient texts, we have better credibility than any other text. You can also see the fourth column there, it says time gap. That's how much time transpired between the writing of those texts and our earliest copy of those texts. And you can see how different it is with the New Testament. And then the last column, how many copies, how many manuscripts do we have of each of these works of literature? And the New Testament puts them all to shame. With over 5,800 copies or 5,800 manuscripts of the New Testament compared, I mean, Homer's Iliad, Homer's Iliad, that's pretty good at 643 considering it was 800 B.C., but still that's nothing like the New Testament. I shared this graph with you just for you to gain an appreciation for the documentation we have of the New Testament. No, we don't have the original texts, but we have so many manuscripts available that we have plenty of evidence for what that text says. We'll talk more about this as we go along because tonight and next week in particular, our focus is on these manuscripts and understanding just how useful and beneficial and, and um, uh, adequate they are for our purposes of making sure that what we have is in fact the Word of God. 
So we'll ex- we're going to be examining that for these couple of weeks, maybe even longer. But 5,800 manuscripts within 200 years or so of their original writing. So, let me rephrase that. Some of which are within 200 years of their writing. With that, I want to move on to talking about the manuscripts themselves that we possess. Not all manuscripts are created equal. There are some manuscripts that are considered better than others, and this is going to be a very simplistic breakdown of a few factors that are used to determine the quality of these manuscripts. Tonight our focus is going to be on one, uh, one uh, principle of understanding quality among manuscripts, and that is simply the age of a manuscript. How old it is matters. Generally speaking, the older a manuscript is, the more valuable it is. The closer a New Testament manuscript is to the first century, the more reliable it's considered to be. So if you have a manuscript coming from the second century, when the New Testament was written in the first century, you consider that second century manuscript to be better than one that came from the 12th century. What's closer is better. That's a general rule of thumb. It's kind of like that, um, that game you play as a kid where you uh, whisper something in your neighbor's ear and it goes around the room. The further it gets away from the original person, the more off it's going to be. And so that same principle applies to manuscripts. The ones that are closer to the original are considered to be the most reliable. But here's the thing. How do you date a manuscript? How do you find out the age of a manuscript? Well, let me share with you five ways that's accomplished. One is by the material of the manuscript. What is that text of Scripture written on? And so you'll see I put out out beside this papyrus or vellum slash parchment. Papyrus was the primary writing material prior to the popularity of of parchment for the New Testament. Parchment didn't really enter the scene until the 4th century AD. So we're talking the 300s. So for the first two centuries after the New Testament is written, most of its copies are on papyrus leaves. And so if you find a papyrus manuscript, it might be dated earlier than a, a vellum or parchment, which, by the way, vellum and parchment, what, what kind of material is that? Does anybody know? Animal skins. Animal skins. So if you find papyrus, which is made out of uh, a plant particularly that, grow, that was very popular in Egypt in particular, if you find a papyrus document, that tends to give it an earlier date. Not always, because papyrus continued to be used for some time. But papyrus usually gets you an earlier date. And papyrus was cheaper than vellum or parchment, than animal skin. And so in the early life of Christianity, when Christianity was, was an illegal religion, for lack of better terminology, when, when Christianity wasn't popular, when, when Christianity was persecuted, and so there wasn't a lot of money to be had in Christianity, Their primary writing document was the least expensive one, papyrus. There are some 76 of these papyrus manuscripts of the New Testament that we have in existence today. 
They were used, as I said, because they were inexpensive when compared to the animal skins. And we also have what's called a codex. Or a codex, a codex is a collection of papyrus or a collection of animal skins. It's a bound book with multiple sheets of that whatever substance is used. And so we have also some codices made out of papyrus as well. Now parchment, parchment did predate papyrus as well. The Old Testament was originally written on parchment. In fact, you go to um, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 13, and Paul asked Timothy when he comes to him in Rome, bring me my parchments. He's referring to his copies, his personal copies of the Hebrew Bible. So parchment preceded papyrus, but papyrus became popular because of its inexpensiveness and, ready, and, and the fact that it was readily available. I want to show you the difference between a papyrus document and a vellum document. Here on the left side of the screen is papyrus. This particular one, we'll see it again in a little bit, or maybe next week, depending on how much time we have tonight, records a section of John chapter 19, and it dates from about 150 A.D. to 200 A.D. On the right side is a vellum page of John chapter 1 from a, from a codex that dates into the 300s. Now this document on the right is a very important document. But it's not as old, it's not as early as this document on the left that's made out of papyrus. Now just looking at these two documents, what do you notice about papyrus? It's a bit more fragile than vellum. The beauty of animal skins in the, for use as paper, basically, is that it's much more durable. Papyrus, not quite so durable. And so that's one reason why you're going to have less papyrus documents than you will vellum and parchment documents. But these papyrus documents are extremely important because of their age. So whether a manuscript is written on papyrus or vellum may help determine its date, with papyrus tending to be the older type of document. But that's not the only thing you can rely on because there are some really late or more recent papyrus documents as well. So another factor you have to consider is the font used in the writing of these texts. There are two categories of manuscripts related to the New Testament based on their type of font. What you have to consider is whether or not you have capital letters, all capital letters, or small letters. The group of documents that have writing in all caps are called unseals. Unseals are the earliest of the documents. In fact, most papyrus documents are also unseals, also written in all caps. That was the style of writing from about the third, third century, really prior to that because it includes the papyrus, but consider, considering, well, let's leave papyrus alone for a minute, um, but on these animal skin documents from about the 3rd century through the 8th century A.D., unseals dominated. Writing in all caps, which is how I write today, dominated. So I feel justified in my writing in all caps. However, I do not text in all caps because then you're just yelling at people. 
I was hoping somebody would get that. Anyway. So unseals are your older documents. The all capital letter documents are older than the others. There's only about 310 of these documents. So I want you to think for a moment. There's 5,800 manuscripts out there. About 76 are papyrus. About 310 are unseals. Those are very small percentages of the manuscripts. Because the manuscripts that are the oldest are the fewest that we have. We have less of the unseals than we do what's called the minuscules. A minuscule is a document that is written in lowercase cursive writing. This debuted in the 9th century, so the 800s. And the vast majority of our New Testament manuscripts that we have today are minuscules. Now, because they are so much more recent, they are less valuable than the unseals and the papyrus documents. But that doesn't mean they are unuseful. Because they help support the text of Scripture by their abundance and by their, uh, the, the literary um, family that they will fall in, which is something we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. So they still matter even though they are later. Let me show you something about um, unseals and minuscules. On your left is an all-capital-letter document from the 400s called Codex Alexandrinus, one of the most important documents we have. All capital letters. I know you can't read that because it's in Greek, but you can tell that those are big letters compared to what's on the right. And on the right is, the minuscule, is a minuscule from the 12th century, and you can see it's um, lowercase letters, and there is some bleeding between the letters as if there's cursive writing. And so the fact that these two documents, one has capital letters, one has cursive lowercase letters, gives you an idea that one is older than the other. Here's a third category for dating, for understanding the age of a document. Punctuation. The original early documents didn't use punctuation. Didn't even use spacing between words. I want to show you what that would look like. This is John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and what it would look like in an unseal document without punctuation. Now you can figure it out because you know the verse. But one thing you'll notice, the way this verse appears in English up here, when you get to the end of the line, even if you're only using one letter from the next word, you, you split the word up between sentences, I mean between lines. That's how a Greek manuscript might look. This would be a headache for you and I. This would be miserable for you and I. We, we, we like this. We want our spacing. We want our commas, our periods. We even want our verses, our, our, our numbering system. But none of that existed in the earliest documents. So one thing you can do, going back to this same example is you can tell the age of a document by determining whether or not it has punctuation and spacing. Because punctuation, periods, commas, colons, accent marks, things like that, really didn't come into play until about the 8th century. Even spacing took a while. And so if you look, over, if you look here, there's not much spacing. 
there's no commas, no periods, nothing like that. But if you look over here, you'll see some little marks that give punctuation. And of course, you can see, you can see the spacing, you can see commas and things like that. So punctuation is a sign of age as well. Interestingly, another factor is ink. Originally, all texts were written in black ink, but later other colors like green and red began being employed. Let me show you an example of that. On your left is Codex Sinaiticus from the 300s. We've seen this one, I think, once before already. But that was all black ink. On your right is an unseal from the 10th century. And I don't know how well you can see it on the screen, but that's in red ink. Your ink color started to change over time and allowed, allows us to have some ability to date these documents. One last one I want to mention of how you can date a document or what contributes to the dating of a document is its decoration. Is it ornate or is it plain? Ornamentation of manuscripts became more and more elaborate in the unseals from the 4th century to the 9th century. From the 300s to the 800s, you would see a lot of ornate writing. But then it kind of declined. Decorating the page started to trail off after the uh, 9th century. Minuscules, those lowercase cursive documents, didn't care to decorate their pages so much. Let me show you an example of this using Codex Sinaiticus, which we just used a minute ago, from the 300s on your left. And then another codex from the 9th century. You can see the intricate design at the top of the page. You can see some of the letters getting... Uh, are made bigger and, and, and decorated with colors and things like that. And so what you see is how you can have decoration on these texts. In fact, I forgot to change out Codex Sinaiticus. That wasn't supposed to be there. Anyway, but you can see how you have plain versus decorated, and that will be a factor in determining date as well. I share all those with you for the simple fact of saying there are ways to be able to date a document. And this dating system isn't limited to manuscripts of the New Testament. Other Greek documents of the same time period reflect these same characteristics that allow for dating. Now, there are some manuscripts that actually have dates written on them, but the majority do not. Those documents that have dates written on them do help us determine the dates of other documents, of course, based on their similarity of Material, font, punctuation, ink, decoration. There are other factors, like format. How many columns does the text have? How wide are the columns? That sort of thing can play a factor as well. I share this with you, as boring as it is, because it's supposed to build confidence for us in our ability to determine if the manuscripts that we have in our possession are accurate representations of the Bible. And by understanding a manuscript's age, we can start to understand or we can start to get a picture of how old these texts are and how long the, the, uh, the tradition of the text or the, the language has remained consistent. 
If you have a document from the 2nd century that quotes John 3.16, and you have a document from the 4th century, and you have a document from the 7th century, and you have a document from the 10th century, and they all say the same thing, you have a consistency there that you can build on, that, you can, that allows you to trust the text. And so that's going to play a part. Next week we, we are going to, because our time is very limited right now, I'll, I'll get started on this, but we want to start tonight and finish next week. I want to share with you the most important manuscripts that we have based on age. We'll start with this one, called the John Rylands Papyrus. This is the one that's dated as early as 114 or so A.D. This little piece of papyrus that's only about three and a half inches by two and a half inches, not very big at all, but it's written on front and back. The front records John chapter 18, verses 31 through 33. The back records verses 37 through 38 of the same chapter. This little piece of papyrus dates back to the early parts of the, first century, uh, excuse me, of the second century during the time of Hadrian as emperor. So somewhere in the 117 to 138, some people go a little bit earlier than that. But that's the time frame that this document dates to. Now this is from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John could have been written as late as the 80s or 90s A.D., putting this particular manuscript within 20 to 30 years of the composition of John, potentially. That gets us very close. I mean, could it be possible? Could it be possible that this was a, a, a second edition? One of the first, first copies of the Gospel of John? And I want you to also, as we go through these, these slides this week and next week, looking at the best documents we have, let me rephrase that, the oldest documents we have. I also want you to note when they were discovered. This little piece of papyrus wasn't found until 1920 and wasn't translated or, or, uh, or its contents shared with the public really until 1934. These dates are going to matter several weeks down the, ray, down the way when we start talking about translation. But for now, notice this little scrap records John chapter 18, dates back to the early part of the second century, and wasn't made public until the early part of the 20th century. Next, we have a collection of papyrus called the, okay, let me try this, Oxyrhynchus papyrus. It's several pieces of papyrus that were found, some much better condition than the one we just saw. These papyrus were found in a town of the same name in Egypt in their dump. Archaeologists went there to do some excavations. The, the excavations began in 1896. This I showed you earlier. This is P90. That's how papyrus are labeled with a capital P and then a numerical uh, superscript. P90 is a fragment dated between A.D. 150 and 200. And guess what? It contains John chapter 18 and John chapter 19, or at least parts of it. Another piece of the Oxyrhynchus papyrus is P104, also dated 
150 to 200 A.D. This one contains Matthew. Also pay attention as we go through these, which books of the Bible are recorded. This third one, oh, now we go to the, those two are from the Oxyrhynchus Papyrus Collection. Remember, these were found in 1896. They date from about 150 to 200 A.D. We have John and Matthew included among those. Then there's the Bodmir Papyrus. These were discovered in 1952. Are you, are you, are you getting a, an idea of how recent some of these were discovered? The Bodmir Papyrus, there's about 22 documents also discovered in Egypt. We have Old and New Testament books among them, but also some secular works too. These, like I said, found in 1952. The first one is P66. It's a near-complete codex. That means book, book, essentially, collection of papyrus leaves that form a book. A near-complete codex of the Gospel of John dating to A.D. 200. Let me also say this. That is our second of three bells. We still have a few minutes, but these are the bells for, uh, to signal parents to get their kids for their various age groups. So just I forgot to mention that early on. Gospel of John is here in P66, dating to around 200 AD. There are 78 leaves containing the uh, sections of John that are written on the screen. So because there is fragmentation that happens, it's not a complete um, catching every verse, but it is a significant amount of the Gospel of John. Then in the Bodmer Papyrus, there's also P72. It contains the earliest known copies of Jude, 1 Peter, and 2 Peter, all of which, which date to the early 3rd century. That's the early 200s. And you can see this is also in almost a book form. It's got several pages to it of papyrus leaves. And then finally among the Bodmer Papyrus is P75, consisting of 50 different leaves that are in whole or in part containing Luke's Gospel, with the exception of one small section, and much of John's gospel. This one dates to about 175 to 225 A.D. So in these early papyrus, I've got to remember if I've got any more. Oh, the Chester Beatty papyrus. Let's finish papyrus tonight, and then we'll do the codexes next week. The Chester Beatty papyri are a collection of 11 manuscripts, three of which contain portions of the New Testament, discovered in 1931. Every one of these papyrus documents that I've mentioned were found in either the late 1800s or the early 1900s. Among this group is P45. It was originally bound as a codex that could have consisted of up to 220 pages. Now it's only got 30 pages today, which contain portions of all the Gospels and Acts, dating to around 250 AD. Then there's P46, dated between AD 175 and 225, containing the last eight chapters of Romans, all of Hebrews and virtually all of the two Corinthian letters, Ephesians, Galatians, Philippians, Colossians, and a couple chapters out of 1 Thessalonians. And there's P47. This one has Revelation, or at least much of Revelation, and it dates to A.D. 250 to 300. I share these papyrus with you because though they aren't complete, they do give early evidence Evidence within the first 100 to 200 years after the writing of these documents and virtually covers every book of the New Testament. There are other papyrus, but these are the, the big ones. These are the most well-known papyrus documents. Next week, as we get started, I'm going to go over the animal skin documents, the vellum, parchment documents, 
primarily made up of codexes, all of which are unseals, all capital letters. And those are the most important documents for, trend, for, the, for the text of our New Testament because they are more complete than the papyrus documents. From there, we'll continue our study of the transmission of the text, examining other ways in which other principles of manuscripts, such as text type and other factors. And we're going to start learning about how we can determine which texts are the most valuable. I hope you'll stay with me because I know this can get, uh, it can drag a little bit at times because it's got historical stuff to it or it's got um, archaeological stuff to it. But I want you to understand how scholars can have confidence in what they're collecting for the sake of Scripture and how this can embolden our faith in the Word of God. Let's close out in a, in a word of prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for another evening of study and we ask for your blessings as we all travel home tonight. Uh, Lord, may we represent you well. May we go and do this week. And Lord, may you continue to uh, grow our faith. May we always follow your lead. We love you, Lord, and it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.